And hello, everybody, and welcome to Realcom Live. So glad to be here with you this week. Um, I know I say it every week, but I'm going to say it again. We've got an incredible show, exciting show today. Kind of a topic that we've been inadvertently talking about for probably the last you know 18 months. Post-pandemic, you know, what happens after the pandemic as it relates to commercial and corporate real estate as far as the role technology will play? Uh, and that's been a theme for Realcom for almost 25 years. But as you all know, the pandemic um, accelerated some things, got everybody to uh, participate in this work from home experiment. And even people who believed in it very little uh, came around at some point to realize that uh, this video conferencing and remote um, communications was a good thing to have uh, during a pandemic like the one that we're still going through. So who better to talk about this topic? I mean, you know, you can talk to your, your neighbor, you can talk to the guy at the grocery store. They've got some opinions, but those opinions are framed up in a very narrow world of experience. So today we are so, so fortunate to have Spencer Levy, the Global Chief uh, Client Officer and Senior Economic Advisor for CBRE. So let's unpack that a little bit. CBRE, largest company in the world dealing with real estate. Hello, Spencer, how are you? So good to see you. So we got we start with CBRE, right? You guys touch every corner of the planet. You've had a stellar reputation for hundreds of years in various iterations. And you and your role, your 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 role is literally to run around the world, talk to everybody, take the anecdotal data, take the statistical data, grind it up and tell us what the heck's going on. So summary. So thank you for being here. I know how busy you are. I know what your schedule's like. Um, I remember uh, you were at a real calm. You were one of our keynote speakers and you and I were getting ready and there you were five minutes before going on to the general session stage, you were in the parking lot on a conference call. <laughs> so you know, like my life. Yeah, yeah. So I am so glad uh, that you found some time for us. So let's start with you giving, for those who are not fortunate enough to know your background, why don't you give everybody a little bit of uh, uh, overview of you know, what you do, where you've been and, and, and the kind of role you play at CB. All right. Sure. So today I am the chief client officer at CBRE. And uh, I have uh, responsibility for our largest clients on both the investor and the occupier side. I also still have a foot in our research uh, division as senior economic advisor, uh, not just reading the research, but occasionally writing on it. I'm also fortunate to be the co-chair of the uh, Real Estate Roundtables Research Committee with my terrific partner, uh, Paula Campbell Roberts from KKR. Uh, so I have my finger on the pulse of all of the capital issues, all of the political issues, that impact our issue, our industry today. And I talk to clients about them and I learn from our clients as well. Um, my background, uh, I'm a lawyer, uh, I'm an investment banker, and now I've been at CBRE for uh, over 14 years. Wow. So, I mean, you know, in some respects, in a much smaller scale, we at Realcom kind of do the same thing. We, Our focus is real estate technology, automation, innovation, and how it impacts space. So we talk to people you know, and, and, you know, these are the people we talk. So we've got a pretty good perspective on this issue, but I can't imagine what your brain has to go through to take all the data that you receive and then, you know, kind of reorganize it and come out with what are simply, you know, anomalies versus true trends. I mean, do you have a process, you know, or is it just what goes on in your brain to be able to say, all right, this is not a trend. This is something that's going to come and go. And, and this is what we can really expect in five years. Well, I think the best way to start the conversation is to say that even since I was a kid, I've always been a skeptic. Uh, and when, to be a skeptic, I think, is a good thing to question all the answers. And so I always start with the traditional house view. 
and I have our traditional house view on what what's the outlook for the economy, what's the outlook for office, for retail. And then I take a step back and I question it. And I question it using the tools that I have available. And some of those tools are anecdotal, speaking to clients about what the facts on the ground say, because one of the things I always say about commercial real estate is you can't just rely on data and artificial intelligence. You have to know the facts on the ground. But then a lot of it is based upon academic experience and grounding going back well over 30 years, including my experience uh, back at uh, the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations, where I studied labor. And I mentioned that specifically because it's the one issue that I think is the most overlooked, but the single most important one, uh, if you were to put a, uh, a guide over what really has gone on during COVID and what we expect in the future. It is a labor issue. It is not a real estate issue. I mean, think about it. where do laborers spend their time indoors for the most part, right? And so it, they will drive the conversation. So let's let's just set some framework up. So you know, let's go back fifty years. Office, industrial, retail, multifamily to some extent. We lived in a world where you lived one place, jumped in an automobile, went to work, got off of work, got in your car, went to the mall, did some shopping, ran some errands, went home, took the kids, you know, to, to you know sports or, or whatever. So I'll call it the Henry Ford impact on real estate, you know, and then probably 30-ish, five years ago, people like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs started building these things called computers and put them in everybody's hands. And this thing called the internet comes along and now we can do what we're doing right now, right? Pretty easily. Then the pandemic comes along and says, all right, well, I'm going to force you to think about some new ways. And hence a workforce stayed at home for two years uh, and, and now is getting used to some of these things. So here's my first question to you. Digital transformation, impacts on real estate, COVID, technology, changing work habits, temporary or permanent? Well, like I said in my opening comments, I'm gonna go with the labor versus management uh, angle because okay. I think it depends upon uh, looking at through that lens because your answer to how much technology is going to impact how people work is not generic. It's dependent upon your life stage. Are you married and you have kids? Do you live out in the burbs? Uh, it's dependent upon your industry, your function in the industry. Are you client facing or not? And then going back to my history at Cornell, when we studied labor in the 80s, we made two basic assumptions about labor, that labor had perfect information and that labor had perfect mobility. They were false, but they are true today. And those people that understand that labor's rights have gotten stronger are the ones that are asserting it the most. And I have some on the ground facts about that. Uh, right. So which industry do you think is downsizing the most, going hybrid the fastest? It's the law no. firm industry. And the reason is, is because number one, they were a laggard behind other industries when it came to the uh, change in office space. Think about law libraries, think about copy rooms. Uh, but the other thing is who is the most and I hate to use the word politically aware type of employee, a young lawyer. And they are asserting those rights and their rights are being inserted in part by saying, I want to be hybrid. I want to work from home. Do, do you remember L.A. Law? The, I do. The, so Steve Bochco was the executive producer. Yeah. I was just coming out of selling law firm technology in the late 80s. And I wrote Steve Bochco a letter and said, Steve, I would like to be uh, an advisor to your writing team. I want to create a segment for L.A. Law where a rogue lawyer grabs his laptop and wants to be a lawyer from anywhere in the world. He said I was out of my mind. And, and here we are 30, 30 years later saying the law firms are finally starting to get um, 
uh, the understanding of how mobility and, and or the law library on the tenth floor at X dollars per square foot, those books don't make much sense anymore. Well, here, here's uh, to quote Jurassic Park: <laughs> just because you can doesn't mean you should. Sure. Right. And right. and that really comes down to when I was a young lawyer in New York City, I got to the office at seven o'clock a.m. every day and typically worked till ten o'clock at night every day. And I was in there not just to get done my leases or my mortgages or my other contracts. I was there to be mentored by the absolutely professionals. So absolutely. you want to be mentored and there is no business that is more apprentice like than the law business. Um, and you want to do it from home. You're serving yourself. Uh, you're giving yourself a disadvantage. Well, and that's a phenomenal point because there's the tactical you know, processes that you have to deal with in any. Let's say you're a new person coming into the, in the industry and you're getting a little project. You go away and you do it. That's well and good, but that mentoring, that 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 15 minute conversation, you know, at lunch or those discussions in the hallway or or that drink after work. I mean, you can't discount that, and and that's where it's going to be interesting to see how the digital and the physical worlds come together in some way they can, can you know, for those people who, who are doing two hour commutes and can't come in every day, how do we give them the opportunity to still participate in things like mentoring, you know? Well, well that's right. I mean, listen, my dad lived up in Pound Ridge, uh, which is north of the city. He commuted two hours each way every day to the office. And it was like normal. Um, right. That was, yeah. that was, what was yeah. normal. Um, so I think that, uh, that may not be normal anymore, particularly when you're at a life stage, when you got young children at home and you want to go to sporting events and otherwise. Uh, but nevertheless, I think that the future looks more like the past than most people think once you break it down by the measures that I just discussed, by life stage, by industry, by job function. If your job function is primarily client-facing, you are going to be primarily in the office. But see, I would question, I mean, I was always client facing in every role in every career, mm -hmm. you know, part of my journey. And I was never in the office because I was always at the client site, right? I was in I was an never, office, better stated in an office. Office, got it. Well, got not it. necessarily your office, right? Because I'm never in my own office. I'm right. always at the client's office or right. at a dinner with the client or at coffee with the client. To me, the office, for me has always been the amalgamation of all these things. Funny story, when I first got to CBRE 14 years ago, I had three offices that literally had my name on the door. One in Baltimore, one in DC, and one in New York. Now I have none and I'm happier. Well, you know, it's funny though, you said we have to go back. How far back do we have to go? If you think about the late 1800s, the library in the home was the place where business got done. Then you go a little bit further down the road. Where did the shopkeeper live? above his shop, right? I mean, so I, I think sometimes if we want to look to the future, we really do need to look to the past and, and kind of examine, had we been here before? Without a doubt. And because I'll give you this one little subcategory, which is infrastructure, which is a word that people define in a lot of ways. But in terms of physical infrastructure, people talk about airports, they talk about trains, they talk about roads. But do you know what the most important piece of infrastructure is? Your own two feet, yeah. walkability. And that was the case back in the 19th century. And that's the case again today as the areas within commercial real estate where we're seeing the greatest activity have the confluence of two or three factors. Well, let's see if we can get this topic in before. Yeah, let's see if we can get this topic in for the break. We're preparing, you talked about something called no longer a CBD, 
Central Business District, but a BBD, a better business district. First time I'd heard that phrase, explain. Sure, well, first of all, credit where credit is due. That's a term that I learned from my client, Highwoods Properties, a REIT in the southeastern uh, United States. And what it means is that where business is going to get done isn't going to be uh, at always in the traditional central business district of that city. It is now in what they call a BBD, a better business district, which has more elements of life live, work, play than just the CBD. And these elements include not just talent, not just capital, but also this live, work, play element. So you take a look at a city like Chicago and you will take a look at The Loop. It's a great place. I got lots of clients there. We have lots of offices there. But then where is a lot of the activity going? It's going to the Fulton Market, which is an off the beaten track part of town, uh, which has now uh, brought some of the corporate headquarters of some of the largest corporations there. But it also has great restaurants, has a great art scene. It's a cool place in addition to a place to work, that might be a great example of a BBD. Right, well, and, and BBD could maybe get you closer proximity to houses with yards as opposed to apartments that don't let you get out inside. I think the pandemic influenced a lot of behavior. I mean, I know, you know anecdotally, a lot of people who said, you know, I need to go buy myself a house with a yard so in case we ever get locked down again, I can at least walk around in my yard, right? So. What about, uh, and I know we're not talking about technology, we'll, we'll finish the second segment with that, but um, how does, you know, what the pandemic do, done to us influence density and people wanting to be around other people and maybe a little bit more room to spread out? Are you seeing any trends there? Well, look, the one trend where I will agree that the trend accelerated was the movement of people from some of the large Western and Eastern cities, coastal cities, to places like Raleigh to Denver, to Phoenix, to Orlando, to Tampa, to the to Nashville, to the quote, new kids on the block. And you definitely saw that move for all the reasons you just suggested. And you also saw some people moving from the cities to the suburban areas in those cities for some of those reasons. But right. let me be very direct on this one point. Do not count out New York, San Francisco, Chicago, LA, because we did a study on several of those markets, which said that even though they are going to face more competition, from some of these new kids on the block markets, and they are going to have a shrinking demographic overall, they're still gonna have a growing demographic in the most highly educated, highly talented, and dare I say it, highly productive people. And that is what drives real estate demand. And that's why the future I, of- I, 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 would, I would love to have you back and do a segment just on this topic, and then we can mm -hmm. you know, draw the technology conversation into it. But San Francisco's getting battered pretty hard right now. And if and, you could buy an office building there at current market value, back up the truck because San really, Francisco is going to come back and it's going to come back bigger and better than ever. Timing. Am, What's your timing? Well, you know, it's going to be a few years. Uh, during the GFC, it took four or five years. During the tech bubble, it took about the same period of time. We're probably looking at the same period of time today, but you could not replicate its what's called, and I hate to use a fancy economics term, the agglomeration effect that's in San Francisco, the confluence of capital, talent, the arts, live, work, play, uh, foreign money coming into the market, almost irreplaceable. And so because of that, San Francisco is going to come back and come back stronger than ever. It just might take you know four or five years. I would love to do coffee with you Saturday mornings, have this dialogue between us because I got some the ideas on, on separation of, of or uh, distribu distribution of workforces that we saw in the pandemic that I'm trying to figure out how does that all play into a CBD, the traditional CBD. Mm -hmm. So maybe we'll do that and then and, and get back on a show and, and discuss and debate it a little bit. Let, let us take a quick break and we're going to get right back and we're going to focus on 
the technology and the impact it's going to have coming out of the pandemic uh, on, on the built environment. All right, let's bring Stuart back because I know we're going to run out of time and uh, I got so many questions for him. Spencer, so I think I said Stuart, I apologize, Spencer. Um, You're not the first guy, don't panic. We, we sh I, I wish these shows in some cases were an hour because we could go on. So before we get on to the next topic, uh, somebody had asked a question online and said, LinkedIn HR uh, statement that only 30% of the people are going to go back to the office full time. And there was a 60 Minutes episode where, where they kind of went into detail. Are you aware of that? And um, any comments on what they what statement on that statement? First of all, and I say this with great respect to LinkedIn, to 60 Minutes, to KPMG, to our own research. The true answer is nobody really knows the answer, right? right. But because let me give you one really great example. During the depths of the crisis, um, a large accounting firm came out with a survey and the survey said, ask CEOs of companies, how many of you think you're going to materially reduce your office usage? And 70, 70% said they would. Then fast forward, that same company did the same survey with the same CEOs nine months later. You know what percentage of them said it then? 17, yeah, 70, 20. 17. How do you know the difference? <clears throat> the rest, emotion, that sort of thing. But there is some truth to the fact that people will be in the office less. And just to know our house view, we think people are going to go from 4.4 to 3.5 days per week. But then you have to go down these categories that I was talking about, the demographics, the industry, your function within the industry. Uh, and once you go through those factors, you're going to see that some industries are going to come back to the office far more than you can anticipate. Yeah, very well said. I love your your point about uh, segmenting it, you know, by age group, by job description, because a lot of people just want to throw a blanket, you know, statement out there. Yeah. I, I fully agree. You got to dig deeper. All right, so let's get into the topic of the technology. So, you know, when you and I first started our career, we got into our cars, we drove to the office, we sat there, we did our work, we left, we went to happy hour. After the at the end of the day, and we came home and we did it over and over again. 30 years ago, I started watching video conferencing at the AT&T Video Conference Center in Los Angeles. And this was always what we would do. We would take our hands and put it in front to see if there was any lag in the video. And then all of a sudden, companies like Skype and Zoom come up and they've got it figured out. We're doing this. But the whole world really didn't adopt to it yet. The pandemic comes. We have to learn about you know, Skype and Zoom and Teams pretty quick. We did. The Microsoft numbers and, and the growth in that company will support. A lot of people got used to using this. So now we're getting ready to go back. We got all these new tools, but guess what? There's a whole new set of tools coming that called immersive experiences. And I'm not talking Metasphere. I'm talking in the office, allowing me and you to feel like we're in the same room when maybe we're not. I remember the old AT&T commercial where people were having a Thanksgiving dinner. Half the table was at the dinner table and the other half was on a screen at the end of the wall, but it looked like one table. That's got to be a 10-year-old commercial. What does the office look like? Once all these technologies start to bubble up and we figure out which ones work and which ones don't, what does the office experience look like in three to five years? Sure. So I think the key opening phrase is the office has to be a place where you want to go versus a place where you need to go, right? Because you don't necessarily need to go to the office if you have any type of paperwork or certain types of functions where you don't need to be in front of people, but you're going to want to go there anyways because it's going to have to make you better in objective ways. And the objective ways that going to the office will make you better is, first of all, from a work standpoint, if you have any type of creative or collaborative project, you can't tell me that working in the face-to-face -face isn't better than being online. Yep. But then you have the soft skills like 
communication, like networking. And then we go back to that term mentoring. That's so important. Very, very difficult to get uh, online. You need to have an environment that enables those types of things. And the environment, which was pre-COVID, having a more of an open design where people could sit anywhere, that was part A. But then when you layer the technology on it, you're going to have more rooms where you're going to have the ability to have a conference where it seems like the person sitting next to you. I was at a virtual reality uh, place where somebody can actually put somebody physically next to you, not not on a screen, but actually next, next to you, and like in three dimensions. But that does not still take that person and walk with you to the coffee machine, though I have seen some technologies where they've had robots where the person's face is on the robot and follow you to the coffee machine. So I'm not suggesting to you that that can't be the case uh, as well. But I think that, go ahead. I'm sorry, no, no, finish your thought, sorry. No, but I think that ultimately uh, those are the communication tools that we're going to use, right? Right. But I think there's a, a whole other category here that we haven't talked about, which are the analytical tools for making a real estate investment or occupancy decision. And those are the types of things where there are great algorithms out there. There's great data out there on that sort of thing. But the thing about the commercial real estate industry, as opposed to, say, trading commodities or stocks or bonds, we are not a commodity. There still has to be that human element of making that selection decision, of making that investment decision that may not be based purely on the numbers. There's a concept that we've been following for a number of years. In fact, we actually teleported three-dimensionally somebody into a Realcom conference in 2001, 21 years ago. The guys who invented the the haunted house at Disney were in Texas and they were playing around with teleportate like Cisco had done. We literally brought in somebody, Malcolm King from from King Sturges in London. They had a teleportation studio there, and he just kind of came onto the stage like Star Trek. This was 21 years ago, okay? Everybody fell off their chairs, okay? Because it lo- he looked more real than I did. Now, fast forward 21 years. I got to believe there's some Hollywood people out there working in studios and in warehouses in L.A. trying to figure out how we do get people in the room that aren't in the room. And, and I mean, imagine if, I, if homes are now equipped with six-by-eight-foot LED walls where I'm not looking at you in a small little you know, window on my computer, but you and I, Spencer, are having a conversation. We're, we're both our normal heights and we're talking to each other. I think there's a billion, multi-billion dollar industry getting ready to get geared up that's gonna come to the built environment and saying, let's work together to make your space valuable and to make the online experience valuable and let's find the middle ground, wherever well, it might be. Right. I think that's right, but then then you've got to get pragmatic about some of the real world issues that are going to hit you beyond just the communication. You know, let's go to insurance. What happens if I'm sitting right here, right now on this call, and I take my cup of coffee, I spill it, and I slip and fall? Is that a work issue or is that a me issue, right? Right. Those are the kind of real world things. Is this my workplace or is this my home? Those are issues that still have to be worked out. Right. And then and then the collaboration issue. If it's a local market, we're all in the office collaborating, whiteboard, totally get it. But if the collaboration team involves 10 people internationally that involves 24-hour flights, you know, hotel stays, I mean, just the logistics of getting that collaboration team into that office to collaborate, at what point does the virtual component make more sense? It's not again, it's not an either or, it's a both. But to your point, you know, you have to dissect it. Here's the thing, and then and I will get right to the cut to the chase. Yes, you will save money by not traveling. But there are the two key words in this business is efficiency and productivity. Yeah, absolutely. Efficiency 
is what you get by producing more widgets or the same number of widgets with less cost. Productivity is what you get by getting an unlimited amount of more widgets, more widgets by spending more money. The reason why we focus so much on efficiency and cost is because it's measurable. Productivity, very difficult to measure. And some people will argue you could be just as productive well, as things you can. And I argue you can't. And I would I would pile on top of that saying, um, I use the word effectiveness, right? You know, efficiency and effectiveness, two very different things. You can be efficient, but not effective. But I think the other thing that's at risk when everybody's segmented by themselves, not working in those rooms with each other is the creativity, the, the cousin to productivity, right? Productivity you know, means we're going to get you know, more out of things and we're going to make some advancements. But creativity is really what drives innovation and innovation is what drives competitiveness, which drives your future. The creativity is the thing I'm the most worried about. I don't think sitting in your room, your home office, that, that you're encouraged or inspired to be creative is is when you're with a bunch of people on a daily basis. Well, anecdotally, I've, I'm told that in the tech industry, they've already seen a fall off in innovation as a result of this. But I can tell you that me personally, um, I try to be as creative, as innovative as I can. But where do I get most of my creative, innovative ideas? By talking to people face to face and not necessarily in the office. It could be at a dinner. It could be at, over coffee. It could be uh, on the golf course. But that human interaction of the, the, let me put it this way, the serendipitous human interaction uh, is where you find creativity and new ideas, not necessarily the formal one where you're in the office. Well, I would love, and we're out of time, um, and I really apologize because we could go for hours, but first of all, thank you. I know how busy you are, and I really want to thank you for taking the time to, to squeeze us in. Number two, I hope you will come back because you know your wisdom, 17, 18 minutes of your wisdom and guidance can provide a lot of insight to a lot of people. And and, and there's a lot of people looking for answers. And I think in your role with the organization you work for, you have it. And then third of all, I, I'd like to continue conversations maybe on a quarterly basis, you know, just riff on a Saturday morning over a cup of coffee because we see a lot, you guys see a lot, and, and then maybe that could be the fodder that we do another one of these episodes. So hopefully you'll come back. That, that's, my, that's my ask. Please call anytime and hopefully next time in person. Awesome. Thank you so much, Spencer, and you have a wonderful day. You too. Be well. All right. Well, um, it doesn't get much better than that. I've known Spencer for a long time. He is thoughtful, insightful. He stays up long hours trying to figure out what the right answers are. He talks to a lot of people, and that was truly, truly uh, very fortunate for us to be able to do that and um, and for our audience. So with that, let's bring on Howard Berger. Howard, that's a tough act to follow. Uh, he, he had so much good energy and so much good information. Um, makes me just, you know, a lot of questions. A lot of questions need to be answered. Yeah, thanks, Jim. I, I, Spencer was that, that was a fantastic show. Uh, great conversation. Um, so glad that we had him on again. It's it's been a few years since we saw him, but uh, uh, what a mind. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, each week we I, I'm going to do a little news. We highlight a few of the articles from our weekly news briefing, what we release every Thursday morning. And so our lead article this week is by Serene. Almaman, uh, CEO, and Chase Youngblood, solutions engineer from Senseware. And it recaps the story of how we worked with car properties to assemble an array of indoor air quality, I'll call them IAQ sensor platforms uh, at Realcom this past November, and how car properties subsequently selected Senseware as their IAQ platform of choice to roll out to their entire portfolio. We installed a number, at the conference, we installed a number of these uh, platforms 
in order to continually monitor indoor air quality, but also to educate all of our attendees on the processes and technologies involved in the data intensive IAQ project. So when they walked in, attendees were welcomed with a question, do you know what you're breathing? Um, and to address that, we placed sensors all over the conference hall, including registration, expo hall, coffee, coffee bar, info desk, restrooms, and more. Data was sent in real time to IoT platforms, which analyzed it and then spat out a few key metrics about the air in the overall space. And using the Senseware platform in particular, when attendees scanned their QR code, they got a dashboard that displayed real-time air quality metrics, which in turn sparked a lot of conversations. And as a conference producer, it gave the attendees assurance that their health was a priority. Uh, so here's a couple of key takeaways from the project. One, C-Suite now wants analytics on all aspects of building operations, including indoor air quality. And they're asking more focused questions. How can I use the data to make better decisions? Then once COVID hit, the need for IAQ monitoring literally went through the roof and the public's come up to expect it uh, in buildings. Three, we learned there's a, there is a process. It's a learning process. It's iterative approach. You start small, get a good understanding of the process and the data internally before you start sharing it with tenants and guests. And in this comprehensive article, Serene and Chase, they include a detailed analysis of all the dynamics of how the air quality shifted in different areas different times throughout the conference. Too much to cover, but I really encourage you to read the article. So we talked a little bit with Spencer about the, about the metaverse, and uh, I'm, I'm gonna rehash a story from December uh, on how Jamestown brought metaverse to one Times square. So for those of you who missed the earlier story, Jamestown, they're always innovating, they're never shy. They're now the most active REIT investor in the blockchain and digital assets industry. And in late December, they announced a joint venture with Digital Currency Group to create um, One Times Square in Decentraland. And that's the leading decentralized virtual world. So Michael Phillips, president of Jamestown, he believes that the integration of virtual and physical worlds in the metaverse are going to be an important evolution of real estate and that the built environment uh, and it's going to give access to folks uh, to the virtual uh, to the immersive virtual experience. So their first proving ground was one Times Square in Decentraland, Metaverse, can't get over that, where they kicked off with a New Year's Eve Metafest uh, 2022 global party that featured live music, entertainment, rooftop VIP lounges, crypto art galleries, and immersive games. Now, Jamestown's betting that the Metaverse is gonna blaze a trail for a larger vision, Web 3.0 strategy to enhance their physical assets in the future. No one knows. We're going to keep an eye on that, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Also, uh, I thought this was interesting. Uh, you know, we're learning that electrical vehicle use is, we know it's going to grow from 2 to 31% of the global feet in the next 20, 30 years. And this is going to impact how we design new buildings as well as retrofit our existing stock. And the impact, it's going to be less on space as existing parking lots can be pretty easily retrofitted to allow commercial charging, but the challenge is gonna be delivering enough power to the charging units, which is gonna require about 100 kilowatts per bank of chargers of 10. Plus the fact that charging takes time and the faster the charging, the more power it's gonna take and charging costs money. What we're finding is sometimes as much as 70% of a commercial owner's energy bill. So it looks like owners are gonna to have to figure out a way to monetize these to offset costs. Anyway, uh, something to consider, also great article. I'm completely out of time. That's it for me today. Uh, check out our weekly briefing and I will see you all next week.
All right, Howard, uh, great, great job as always. And, and I, I, that article about the metaverse uh, is, is interesting and we know more than anybody because we've been studying this stuff for our entire careers. It starts out quiet, the roar starts to get louder and louder, you get to a hype phase, there's usually a little bit of collapse or a correction and then the real stuff comes. So metaverse, we don't understand it now. I don't understand it now, but we're going to be paying a lot of attention to it because again, just like our conversation with Spencer, it's not an either or, it's a both. And real estate owners are going to have to find out what it's all about and figure out what their role is. And, and I really yeah, give I, them. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to overhype it. There are going to be some clear, uh, clear use cases, uh, I think, that are going to evolve fairly quickly. How it's going to impact real estate, I that, that well at the conference this year, we, we're going to be diving into metaverse. We're going to be diving into crypto. We're going to be diving diving into NFTs. It started out five six years ago. We were right there when it started, but I'm hearing more. It's getting louder. Are spending money, not thousands of dollars, millions, Mil of dollars. billions, billions. In fact, you know the the crypto asset class is now what over a trillion. Oh, crypto, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, we need to, and thank you very much for the work you do to to keep us apprised of sifting through the hype and, and the stuff that looks a little bit more real. So I appreciate we're going to have these conversations at the conference this year, also. Yeah, we are. Yeah. All right, we well, have a great day and a great weekend, and I will talk to you soon next year. All right, before we wrap today and talk about next week a little bit, let's hear from our final sponsor. All right, uh, great show. Thank you to. Spencer, thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our team for putting this together. Great, great, great show. So next week, going to get even wilder. Um, when Realcom started 25 years ago, the premise was simple. Real estate technology, automation, innovation is going to have a significant impact on how we operate, use, transact, build, lease, design space. Boy, nothing has been truer. Uh, today, it is moving at a million miles an hour. Technology is hitting our industry at all sorts of different angles. And the metaverse is one. So next week, physical space meets the metaverse. We've got a great speaker. We got our guest is going to be Kunai Lunwai from Iga Ventures. I'm sure I uh, mispronounced that incorrectly. I'm going to get it right next week. But um, uh, Kunal, Kunal is a, 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 a becoming an expert in understanding the metaverse, not just in general, but we're going to dive into what the impacts on the real estate market are going to be. Um, you know, what will the role will physical space play in this new virtual world? Uh, and Bill Gates is on record as saying that 30%, um, I forgot the article, uh, I just read it the other day, that uh, office interactions are going to take place on, in, on the metaverse. So uh, we can't ignore it. We're not going to. We're going to dive right into it. And I'm excited to have this conversation with somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. So with that, I say goodbye. Have a great day. And we will see you next week where we are going to explore the metaverse. Be well.